Welcome to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife with Connie and Barry Strom. Your hosts are here to speak the words of the spirits and answer your questions. Now, here are Connie and Barry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife. I'm Barry Strom, your host. We think we have the most unique show on radio. I hope that you tell your friends about us. I use my gift of spirit communication to talk to dead people and educate all who will listen to the miracle of the afterlife. Currently have over 520 videos on our YouTube channel. We cover all aspects of the paranormal and life after death. The channel is in my name, Barry Strom. And I'm Connie Strom, your co-host. Last week, we interviewed Helen Keller and Ann Sullivan. Helen Keller was blind and deaf from the tender age of 19 months. And Ann Sullivan, partially blind herself, taught Helen not only to just get along in life, but become a famous lecturer, author, and advocate for the disabled. The show is available on our Voice America archive. Today, we're going to interview three spirits who became World War II heroes that either gave up fame or wealthy lifestyles to serve our country. Jimmy Stewart, Jack Kennedy, and Audie Murphy. Audie Murphy was the most decorated soldier in the World War, who went on to become a movie star and an inspiration. We'll begin our channeling with Audie Murphy. Yes, and we're very honored to have Audie with us today. Audie Murphy was born in 1925 and died in 1971. He was one of the most decorated soldiers of World War II. He received every military award for valor, including the Medal of Honor, an incredible achievement. He first saw action in 1943 in the Allied invasion of Sicily and fought throughout the European campaign. After the war, he embarked on a 21-year movie career. So, Audie, thank you so much for being with us today. Connie? Yes, happy to have you here, Audie. You came from a background of poverty. Will you tell us about your early life? I don't think I could have come from a much poorer background. Our father basically abandoned us. Mother did best she could, but she passed when I was 16. I did, I sharecropped. I did just basically everything I had to do to get along. I had brothers and sisters, and I tried to look out for them as best I could. But I must say that uh, it was it was a very difficult early life for me. Yes. Why did you always want to join the Army? I saw that things were turning, oh, turning badly in Europe. Almost said a bad word there. I did not. I loved my country. I truly did, even though that I was struggling and, and working. I thought that the Army would give me a good education. and But just simply, I wanted to defend our country. I saw what Germany was doing. I knew we were going to fight the Nazis. I was young. I actually didn't qualify age-wise, but I was a very good shot. I had learned to hunt as a child. I had to shoot things to support my family. So it was logical that I went into the Army. It was something that I always wanted to do. Did your sister actually falsify your birth records so you could meet the age requirement? 
Uh, yes. It's too late for any penalties of it, but I was simply, <laughs> I was 17 when I enlisted. She helped falsify my records. And at that time, the army was looking for people who wanted to fight. So I went into the army when I was 17 and not the required 18 years of age. You were amazing. You were one of the very few to receive every medal for valor given by the army, including the Medal of Honor. You are a prime example of bravery. What do you think creates such extreme bravery, such as you exemplified in a person? I think that everyone is is capable of, of doing brave things. For instance, if you're a mother and have a child in the house and someone breaks in, you will do everything that you can do to defend that child. When you're in the army, you do everything that you can do to defend your friends that are alongside of you. Keep in mind that you do build strong relationships through basic training, through being shipped overseas, through the waiting to get into the war. It is, I think, mainly a matter of situation. When you're in war, you and people are trying to kill you, you actually don't put the thought of dying in your mind. You're trying to save your friends. Yes, you're trying to protect yourself. But anyone out there that has been in a life and death situation understands that you do what you can do. I was put into some very, very bad situations. And I was lucky enough to live through them. What I think about every day are my friends that didn't make it. I wish that I could have could have done better for them. But sadly, in war, people are killed. I was very lucky. God blessed me by saving my life. I was wounded many times, but none of them were ever critical. I did have lasting effects, but I was very, very lucky. But I think most people put in the proper situation will show bravery. Yeah. Will you please tell us about the events that led to you being awarded the Medal of Honor? We were fighting in Germany. The Germans were trying to advance on us. There was a tank destroyer, one of ours that was close by. It was in flames, but it looked as though the 50 cal was still in workable condition. I jumped up on the burning tank and I started firing the 50 cal at the, at the Germans. They say I killed over 60 of them and I managed to hold them, hold the line for my guys. We were in a very bad situation and I simply did what I had to do. It was, I fired the machine gun until I ran out of shells, jumped off the machine, fought with my buddies, and we lost some of them, but I was lucky enough that the machine gun worked. There were enough shells to hold them off. So God was God was my co-pilot. That's all I can say. You can't have a better co-pilot than God. Okay, you received three purple hearts, indicating that you were wounded three times. Would you please tell us about those wounds? When you're fighting and you get wounded, the adrenaline overcomes a lot of it. 
I was hit actually more than the three times, but I didn't let it stop me. I was shot by a sniper in the hip, and that was a very dangerous wound for me. I do did have lasting implications from it, but I did manage to return fire and kill the sniper. Getting wounded is part of war. You need to expect it. Hopefully when you get a wound, it's not fatal. I wanted to get back to the boys as quick as I could. I had been advancing in seniority, and at some one point I was even a full camp company commander. They, the Army appreciated that I wanted to fight, and they knew that I would do my best to protect anyone that was with me. After your military service, you suffered post-traumatic stress, or PTSD. How did PTSD affect you? It was very difficult. I would have insomnia. I was not able to sleep. And when I could sleep, I would have nightmares. I would see the faces of German soldiers in my sleep. I would think that I was being attacked. Even when I slept, I kept a loaded revolver under my pillow. I kept thinking illogically about what was taking place around me. Sometimes I would react violently to small aggravations. It was, it was something that I did not understand. Keep in mind that there were hundreds of thousands of boys returning from W-2 that had the most terrible of experiences. I had been in situations where I had killed literally hundreds of Germans. Each time I did that, I was destroying a family. Yes, they were fighting against me and I had no choice. But each time that I would kill, there would be a mother, there would perhaps be a wife, perhaps children that were left. Sometimes I would even see these family members, they would come to me in my dreams. The Army didn't do much in those days. They did improve through the years, but when I came back, you were pretty much on your own. In those days, you'd, they would refer to it as being shell-shocked or whatever. Sometimes they would refer to it as cowardice. Today, the Army does understand better what was taking place, but for me, after the war, it was at times a living hell. Understandably. What would you tell our listeners about PTSD? I would tell them that it is incredibly real. It's debilitating. It can often re result in suicide. I was very lucky. The Medal of Honor that I, I was given opened the door for me to have a very active career. I could be among other people, and I could be very, very busy. But for many of the boys that returned, it wasn't like that. They would go to their homes. They would be in relative seclusion. There'd be no help. PST is, is not something to be laughed at. It is very serious. It, it almost 
had me take my own life, I will admit it. It is something that I couldn't run from, and I didn't know what to do about it. Today, there's professional help. If you have PTSD, make sure that you do not keep it to yourself. You must seek the professional help that's available. The military is getting better at understanding that when they put the members of the military into situations where they are endangered badly, where they're killing others, that it has an emotional effect on the person. Some people, it does, military does not affect them as much as others. But I want the listeners to understand that PTSD is absolute, it's real, and it can be a very terrible thing. What would you recommend that our government do for those suffering from PTSD? First of all, I would make sure that they stress that anyone with the symptoms of it tell the government so that they have so that they can attempt to get aid. The government has to build more facilities to help more people. Individuals often have to drive hundreds of miles to get to a VA facility. They could build small clinics or they could work with private clinics to provide psychiatric aid. I think the answer is probably best dealing with private clinics. That's a great idea. In 1949, you wrote an autobiography entitled To Hell and Back. Do you think writing the book and recalling all those incidents contributed to your PTSD? I tried to face my problems. I thought that if I wrote a book of detailing it, that it would be of some help in me facing those events. But it had little effect. What advice would you have for people who are suffering from PTSD? absolutely report it to the government. Sometimes there's disability help available for you. They can try to have psych- have psychiatrists help you give, in- give you information. Just simply report it and get and find aid. Do not ever keep it to yourself. Yeah, from 1948 to 1969, you appeared in more than 40 feature films, many of them westerns. How did you become involved in acting? When I when when you have the Medal of Honor, you appear at many events for the government. You get social status that you never had before. It can lead you down an improper path, but it opened the door for me to attempt to learn to act. There were people that wanted to support me because of the bravery that I had shown. I was helped to get into acting school, and many of the people that had heard my story about the medal and what I had done in the war helped me get the job. I I I was blessed with, shall we say, average good looks, but it was just simply... God supporting me. In 1955, the Universal Studios did an adaptation of your book, To Hell and Back, in which you appeared as yourself. That's very unusual. Tell us about playing yourself in the movie. I didn't want to do it, but the financial supporters of the movie said that they wanted the people to see me as 
as I had carried out what I had done in the war. I did agree to do it, and the movie was quite a success, and it helped me get many more parts. It was very difficult because each scene I would be reliving those moments in my mind. It did not help my PTSD at all. How do you think your military career affected your personal life? I was very unstable in my personal life. I made bad decisions. I squandered a lot of money. When you're in my position, a lot of women throw themselves at you. I did things I should have never done. So my military career was both a blessing and it was also something that affected the rest of my life negatively. Sadly, you were killed in a private plane crash in 1971. How were you judged when you returned to heaven? I was judged very positively because I had tried to be lead a good life, and what I did was protecting others. I saved the lives of many, many of my men that were serving under me, and I, in my own small way, I helped win the war. So I was, I had a very, very positive judgment when I returned. Your gravesite is the second most visited in Arlington Cemetery. Does that surprise you? Yes, I am utterly shocked by it. People are trying to hold the history of World War II in their minds. Most of the soldiers that have, uh, that have fought in it are now past and are on this side. But family members still remember, and I am so blessed that people still remember me. Audie, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have a final message for our listeners? Yes, I do. There is no great, uh, greater honor than serving your country. The United States is a, is a blessed country. I would suggest that all of you take time to attend, a, to make a trip to Arlington Cemetery or one of the other major military cemeteries. Each one of those crosses represent a life, a family that was torn apart. Each one of those represent an individual that sacrificed their life for, for their country. There is no greater honor. So thank you for allowing me to be here. I hope that I might stimulate individuals to join the military. It is an honorable profession. There are many people that look down at the military, but they are far from understanding the truth of life. Got that right. Thank you so much. You are a wonderful soul. Okay, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Jimmy Stewart. Connie and Barry will be back after a few words from our sponsors. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Is death the end of the journey of the soul or a time of new beginnings? Is there proof of an afterlife? What would historic figures say if they lived today? Psychic and channeler Barry Strom uses his gift of spirit communication to answer these questions and explore all aspects of the hereafter. Have all the information necessary not to fear life's final journey. Tune in to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife with Connie and Barry Strom. 
Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Psychic and author Barry Strom has now published nine books dealing with supernatural subject from ghosts to aliens. His most recent books, Messages of God and Messages of the Prophet Muhammad for a Modern World, bring you the channeled messages of the founders of Christianity and Islam. Their words are intended to guide their followers through these modern times. These books are available in softcover and ebook on Amazon.com. Signed copies of all of Strom's books are available on his website, www.barrystrom.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Spirit Speak, Exploring the Afterlife. Here are your hosts, Connie and Barry Strom. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Jimmy Stewart is a famous American actor that was born in 1908 and died in 1997. He appeared in over 80 films throughout his long career. He interrupted his career to join the Air Force during World War II. He flew bombing missions in a B-24 Liberator and is awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross as well as other medals. After the war, he continued to serve in the reserves and retired as Brigadier General in 1968. Welcome, Jimmy. It's happy to have you with us. What was it like to be a movie star in the 1930s? It was actually a very, very interesting time to be in the movies. Movies were in their infancy. It was a time that... People loved going to the movies. They were a distraction from the Great Depression. The stars were great, the people to work with. It was very competitive, very hard to get work. But once you established yourself, it was it was a very interesting way to earn a living. I was very blessed. I was guided, and I managed to achieve stardom in the 30s. It was a very difficult time, but it was also a time when there were great movies that were written. I think that some of the best movies of all time came from the 30s. I think you're right. In 1938, you played the lead in the movie You Can't Take It With You that won an Academy Award for Best Picture. Do you think that was your best picture? It was one of my best pictures. It was a time that there were great, some other great movies out there. I know that the movie still rates very high among movie watchers, but in many ways, I guess I can't say that the, uh, 
best movie wasn't It's a Wonderful Life. I know that that is still highly viewed. I know that it had a great moral message. I know that it came at a very important time in my life. So I believe that that was probably the best one. I would agree with that. Tell us about your experience with airplanes before joining the Air Force. I was a pilot. I loved airplanes. I enjoyed flying. I had my pilot licenses. I did. I had my own plane. It was a total enjoyment. When you. It was still a young industry. It was still a young way of, of life. But I thoroughly enjoyed every moment of flying my own airplane. And I felt that that is why I would want to be a pilot in the Air Force. In February of 1941, you were the first major movie star to join the Air Force. This was almost a year before Pearl Harbor. Why did you enlist so long before we were attacked by Japan and entered the war? I knew war was coming. I knew the pacifists were wrong. I felt that I needed to join early. I had my pilot skills. I thought that I could help instruct others. And I knew that we had to be ready. Many people thought that there would be no war, that they'd be afraid to attack us, but I felt that that was not right. I wanted to join so that I had time to prepare people, to prepare individuals to fly in combat. If you, I waited to join until we were attacked, the lead time to prepare pilots was, was considerable. I wanted to have our country as ready as possible. I always truly loved our country, and I wanted to do whatever I could for it. I felt that what I could do in training pilots was much more important than what any, than any career that I could ever have. You are so right. What were your initial duties in the Air Force? I trained pilots. It was exactly what I wanted to do in the beginning. I prepared our boys to meet the enemy with airplanes. I tried to advise individuals that would design our planes as best I could. I tried to do as much as I could to prepare for war. Okay, you asked to be sent to England in 1943 to fly B-24 Liberators. You flew 1,800 hours of flight time with a total of 20 missions over Germany. What motivated you to request such a dangerous mission? I felt that it was truly important that I did the best that I could. I had trained pilots, and I knew what was taking place. I knew how many pilots we were losing, and I knew how important it was that we had pilots that could fly the bombers. I felt that I was very qualified and that I could fly a crew and lead them and bring them back safely. Keep in mind in those days, pilots and the bombers had a very short life expectancy. If you achieved 25 missions, they would often send you back that your war was over because you had bucked the odds so much. 
the beginning of the war was devastating. We do, we the boys were flying with no fighter cover. It wasn't until later in the war that we developed planes capable of staying with them into Germany. The German defenses were at their strongest. There was flak everywhere. There were fighters. Imagine being in a group of bombers and seeing a hundred fighting planes of the German Luftwaffe approaching. It was it was a very, very, very difficult time. The, the Air Force, because of my movie fame, wanted me not to go, but I insisted, and I am so proud that I was able to do it. Will you describe a B-24 bomber for us? A B-24 would carry approximately 16,000 pounds of explosives. There was a crew somewhere between eight and 10. You had gunners, you had nose gunners, tail gunner, your side gunners. We were armed with 50 caliber machine guns. None of the modern missiles that you see today to protect yourself. You would have to wait until the fighters would attack the plane for the boys to get a shot at them. It was a difficult plane to fly at times. It had a very high wing design. In rough weather, it would could be very difficult on the pilot. Navigation was very rough compared to what we have today. There were times that you would not be sure where you'd be actually what your location was. You would rely on your navigator and your who would often become the bombardier over the target. You knew that you had to try to fly over the target no matter how much flack you were taking. It was a good plane. They made thousands of them. It was a strong plane. It could take hits, but way too many of our boys died in them. Which was more dangerous, flak or enemy fighters? You would always have flak over a target. There was no such thing as a free ride. And you had to drop down to make sure that you, we were actually on the target. When fighters came, at least we could defend against them. We had no defense against the flak. And if they managed to, to hit your plane, you had a real problem. Did you ever think you were not going to make it back from a mission? Only about 20 times. <laughs> it was... There were there were no easy missions in those days. Later in the war, once we had better fighter cover, we had more protection from the enemy fighters. But there was never any protection from the anti-aircraft fire that the Germans would throw at us. What do you think when you look at the modern aircraft? I am utterly amazed. The modern aircraft is almost beyond comprehension. Stealth characteristics, being able to engage an enemy at 50 miles away from you. We couldn't engage an enemy fighter until we saw him. 
And quite often they'd be honest before we, we got an idea that they were coming. The modern aircraft is truly a weapon of destruction. A single plane is basically capable of accomplishing as much damage as, as we did in the entire war if they use nuclear weapons. It's the violence that is capable today is truly frightening. Do you think bombing aircraft will be obsolete in the future? I think they probably will. With the advent of modern air defense systems, the missiles are capable of striking so far away and there's no protection in altitude anymore. I think it there will be a time the countries overcome the, the current stealth technologies. I believe in the future that the role of the bombers will be simply to launch long range rocket systems that will carry the weapons. I can see a time that aircraft won't be able to come within hundreds of miles of a target for fear of being shot down. How do you picture the future of military air warfare? Anything else? Standoff. The planes will have to fire their weapons at long distances. I see unmanned aircraft in the future. I think there will be a time that we don't really even require pilots. We're moving in that direction now. I don't think that bombers will truly have a role in future warfare. When flying a bombing mission, you're dropping explosives that are taking many lives. Did that thought affect you? And if so, how? Of course it affects you. But you know that if you don't do it, they'll be dropping bombs on our families. So that is what you keep in your mind. It is important to understand that you have to defend the weak and when you're, no matter how you're doing it at a time of war, it's very important. When you returned from the war, your first movie was It's a Wonderful Life. It's currently in the top 20 list for all-time movies. What messages does this movie bring to the viewer, and did you ever think it would be such a success? No, when we made it, we did not believe it would be so successful. I always tried to do things that were morally correct. I tried to be an example, and that movie sets a, a true example of what morality can bring to you. It's a Wonderful Life was my most successful movie. It was, it told a story of God winning out over evil. It showed that when God is with you, there is always an answer. Yes, as you just mentioned, you always tried to play parts with a moral lesson. What do you think of morality in the America today? I'm so sad to watch what is taking place in many areas of our country, especially in the large cities. Government decisions are creating huge moral issues for people. The economy is destroying the ability of people to make a living. It is a very, very sad time. I hope that they turn people turn closer to the teachings of God, and that is the only way.
What is your opinion of modern movies? The technology of modern movies is absolutely amazing. But it is very rare to see modern movies that truly establish a moral message. There are people out there that are making movies about God and are bringing people closer. But the vast majority of movies that are young or watching have very little moral value. That's for sure. Jimmy, thank you so much for being here today. Uh, do you have a final message for us? Yes, I want to thank you. You're trying to bring moral messages to the people. I tried to do it through my movies. I tried to do it by setting an example in my life. I think that more people have to not be afraid to use the word God in their language. Many people are drawing away from re organized religions. And yes, religions sometimes do things that will alienate the, their members. But if an organized religion truly follows the words of God and not just tries to collect money, it is a great place for children. They can interact with others with, with similar ideals and morals. I think that it is a time people need to step forward. We stepped forward during World War II, and we saved the country. Had we not done so, who knows what the future would have, would have entailed. Individuals need to be strong. They need to do what is right. They need to follow the simple teachings of God, and especially... They need to not do anything that they do not want done to themselves. War is a great example. If you do not want to be attacked and killed and have your towns destroyed, don't do it to another country. So I thank you so much. I thank you for allowing me to speak today. It has truly been an honor, and I hope that perhaps my words could affect some people. That's what we're hoping for. Thank you so much, sir. Okay, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk with President Jack Kennedy. Connie and Barry will be back after a few words from our sponsors. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Psychic and author Barry Strom has now published nine books dealing with supernatural subject from ghosts to aliens. His most recent books, Messages of God and Messages of the Prophet Muhammad for a Modern World, bring you the channeled messages of the founders of Christianity and Islam. Their words are intended to guide their followers through these modern times. These books are available in softcover and ebook on Amazon.com. Signed copies of all of Strom's books are available on his website, www.barrystrom.com. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Is death the end of the journey of the soul or a time of new beginnings? Is there proof of an afterlife? What would historic figures say if they lived today? 
Psychic and channeler Barry Strom uses his gift of spirit communication to answer these questions and explore all aspects of the hereafter. Have all the information necessary not to fear life's final journey. Tune in to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife with Connie and Barry Strom. Tuesdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife. Have a question for Barry or their guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. We are speaking with the spirits of World War II heroes, and none more great than President Jack Kennedy. President Kennedy was born in 1917, died in 1963. In 1940, he graduated from Harvard with a Bachelor of Arts in Government, concentrating on international affairs. He planned to attend Yale Law School, but the Second World War was imminent, and he attempted to enter Officer Candidate School. Despite months of training, he was disqualified due to a chronic back issue. With a little help from his uh, politically invested family, he joined the Naval Reserve. His father pulled some strings, and he was trained at a torpedo boat squadron. He was assigned to an area where he was going to be very safe, and once again, he pulled strings to be assigned to the South Pacific, where we were fighting with Japan. Thank you for joining us again, Mr. President. Um, you were from one of the most wealthy, influential families in America. Tell us a little bit about your family. Yes, my father was very politically important. He had accumulated vast sums of money. And he thought that my brother, Joe, would eventually be a president of the United States. He was very politically active. There really wasn't anything that we didn't have. While most young men from influential families pulled strings to get assigned to safe locations, you used your family influence to get transferred to the South Pacific War Zone. What made you want to risk your life at war? I thought it was my duty. Even though I was from a rich family, I truly loved the country. I felt that I wanted to do as much as I could to protect it. And I knew that I did have a week back. But there was nothing I wanted more than was to go to than to go into the military. I chose the Navy. I had always been raised on around the ocean, so I thought it was a good fit. But I simply truly wanted to fight for my country. Will you describe a motor torpedo boat for us? Yes, they were very fast boats, and they would actually have torpedo tubes on them. We would, they would use us to defend against some of the largest ships. We tried to keep in mind in those days, there were no heat-seeking missiles, and they had, the Japanese ships had cannon, they had machine guns. The best defense that you had was speed against them. We would often operate at night, and we would try to get in close enough that we would fire torpedoes at the ships and 
in an effort to sink them. They were very fast. They were maneuverable. And they were, at times, a very effective weapon against against enemy ships. Yeah. How were those PT boats used in the operations? They would generally send us out in large groups. If intelligence would tell us that enemy ships were passing into an area, we would go into the area at night, keep quiet as possible, show no lights, and try to ambush the enemy ships. However, the ships, they would often hear the noise of our engines, and they would know we were coming. And they would Most of the ships had floodlights on them, and they would try to pick us up in the dark. We would maneuver as fast as possible. We would try to get in, and we would send a swarm of torpedoes. We were not very accurate in our aims. We didn't have all the high technology you have today, and these torpedoes were blind. Once you fired them, we had no control over them. But they would work especially around the island chains of the South Pacific. There were these many, many islands would give us places to hide the ships. We could come out, we could attack, we could go back. They were... They could be very efficient, or there were times that we would not be able to hit anything. Would you tell us about your first PT boat assignment? They sent me to Panama to guard the Panama, to guard down there. I did not want to have be in a place where there was no chance for conflict. I had my father inter- intervene with one of the senators, and they arranged to have me sent to the South Pacific. You were commander of PT-109 in the Solomon Islands. Tell us about your 31st mission. There were about 20 of us. We were there. Were Intelligence had told us that there was going to be enemy destroyers in the area. We came out to make our attack, and... All of a sudden, on my blind side, we were hit by an enemy ship that ran that that rammed our boat. It actually cut the boat in half. Several of the boys were killed immediately. Many of them were wounded and burned. But we found ourselves with a ship that no longer existed, was headed for the bottom. And we were sw- we were swimming among the debris. One of the boys had been badly burned, was in a life jacket. We were about three, three and a half miles from one of the islands. I took a string from his life jacket, held it in my teeth, and swam to the island. We managed to reach to reach the location. We were isolated. Nobody knew we were there. We did the best we could, could, and finally we were rescued after about a week. And how did you arrange that under those conditions? There was an individual there that did not speak English, a native. I took a coconut, and I inscribed a message inside a coconut, <clears throat> and he delivered it. And because of that message... We were, 
we were rescued. How were you injured during the sinking of the PT-109? Well, I hurt my back again. It was kind of a continuing problem. It was actually a problem that would force me to leave the, the Navy eventually. So that was why you were discharged, because of the injury? Yes. I was awarded for the act of saving the, the life of my shipmate. But that was the eventual reason I couldn't overcome the, what was taking place in my back. Mr. President, how would you describe bravery? I think that in most instances, bravery is a necessity. I had to make a decision. Was I going to try to swim to shore or was I going to die? It seemed like it was, at the time it was a very, very simple de decision. I was responsible for the safety of the individuals on my ship. It really was not that difficult to try to save an individual. In order to engage in war, you have to, you have to show bravery. If you don't, then you will fail. The strong survive in war. The brave survive. I think that everyone can, when called upon, has that inner bravery within them. Your older brother, Joe Jr., was killed in the European campaign. Would you tell us a little bit about his mission, how it affected you after the war? He volunteered for a very dangerous mission. He was in the Air Force. One of the bombs exploded prematurely in the plane, and his remains were never found. I, I truly missed my brother. My father always thought that he would be the one that would be president, and he was a very strong individual. I missed him greatly, and I actually attempted to write an autobiography about him. I was very proud of him. He had no reason to volunteer for such a dangerous mission, but he did what he wanted to do. Did you ever suffer from PTSD? I think anyone that goes through what we did in World War II suffers a certain amount of PTSD. There would be times that I would have nightmares, that I would see things. Now, I did not involved in the, was not involved in the close contact that many of the Marines went through on the islands. I can't imagine how any of them ever got any sleep for the rest of their lives for what the Japanese did to them and what they had to do to fight back. But I did have mild symptoms of it. I was pursuing a very active political career, and that did help me to overcome I had access to some of the finest doctors and psychological help as well. Do you think the government should make any changes to their treatment of PTSD? I think that they should make it available on a much easier scale. I think that they should open more clinics, and I think that there is a lot to be done. Mr. President, thank you so much for joining us. Again, I always enjoy your company. Uh, do you have a final message for us? Yes, I do. I want to thank you for allowing me to speak. PTSD is a terrible thing. It affects, in some way, I think, everyone that's involved with the violence of war. The government needs to do much more. PTSD leads to suicide. Suicide is a terrible thing, and it needs to be discouraged. I want to thank 
everyone that serves in the military. I think that there's no finest honor than to serve your country. I think that the military does a great job. There are obviously problems with the military, but they have done an incredible job of keeping us out of war now for almost 80 years. There will be, we have been in, in minor wars, but there's been no world war. I think that our country honors the veterans. I think that much education has to be done to the younger generation to make them take pride in the country and to want them to serve in the military. So thank you for allowing me to come through. If you want me, you know where I can be reached. I do. I feel very honored to have been able to talk with all three of you this evening. Thank you so much. Okay, next week we're going to interview the spirits of three of the most brilliant minds that ever lived, Albert Einstein, Leonardo da Vinci, and Stephen Hawking. We're going to discuss discuss many subjects, including what they see as the future for humans. This should be a really interesting show. I've released my 10th book, Modern Messages of the Archangels. It contains the messages we've received from 20 different archangels. You may not realize it, but there's a lot of angels around us all the time. This book will tell you the information about the angelic energies. The information can change your life. It's available on Amazon in paperback, hardcover, and ebook. Personalized copies are only available on my website, and that's barrystrom.com. I would like to thank all of you for joining us on the Voice America Variety Radio Network. Please tell your friends about our show. As I've said before, word of mouth is the best advertising. If you'd like to see more of our channelings, we have over 500 videos covering all aspects of the afterlife on our YouTube channel. And it's in the name of Barry Strom. So God bless you all. Have a wonderful week. I want to thank all of you that are listening. And I want to thank all of you that try to tell others about our show. We are simply trying to dedicate our lives to bringing others the information that God has made available to us. God truly exists. Heaven truly exists. And death truly exists. If you understand God, then you will not fear death. So thank you for joining us. Please join us every Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Radio Network. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Spirit Speak, exploring the afterlife with Connie and Barry Strom. Tune in next week for another informative and inspiring episode on the Voice America Variety Channel at 9 a.m. Pacific Time.